Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by uh, Kobus Van Staden at the lovely Cape Town's uh, Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. How are you today, Kobus? I'm very good, thanks. I'm in Joburg today. I came for a conference. That's right. You're in Joburg. I forgot. Uh, and then also uh, from Washington, D.C., uh, Anne Sherman, who also kind of doubles as our Facebook community manager. And she joins us uh, with a lot of big news today about our Facebook community. And it exploded this past week. It did. We have over 4,000 followers now. So welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for joining our debate. Welcome, and that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We've actually got a surprisingly active debate that's going on, and it really just kicked up in the past week. So one of the things that we do with this show is we put this show in the center of the Facebook community. So we're going to be extracting comments from the page today, questions and whatnot. We're going to put it back on the page. So we really want the show to be the place where we can engage in dialogue and hope that you you can kind of send your comments and post your thoughts on what we talk about. Now, also today, we're joined by a really special guest, uh, Louise Redvers, who is a freelance journalist based in Johannesburg and who, you know, kind of came up on our radar screens this week because she kicked off one of the topics that we'll cover today is the, the question of Angola's Chinese-built ghost towns. That is an article she wrote for the BBC. Thank you so much for joining us today, Louise. Well, thanks very much for having me. Excellent. Well, in addition to this question of the Angolan ghost towns. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that and kind of find out more about Louise's reporting. We're also going to talk about uh, the issue of Chinese perceptions uh, in Africa. And that is, you know, there's been a debate going on in the past two weeks, especially on Twitter, where an MSNBC article kicked this off. And we talked about it a little bit last week uh, between, you know, perceptions of the United States and perceptions of China. Now, the MSNBC article had a distinctly, I don't want to call it a bias, but a very pro-American kind of view on it. Hard to tell if there's actually any authenticity to it and accuracy to it because the sample size was very small, but we'll get into that as well. And finally, we're going to talk about uh, multinational naval operations off the coast of Somalia. The Chinese are once again sending a naval task force to that area, but also they're joined this time by Japan, India, and South Korea, so a multinational force, a lot of more Asian interest in the coast of Somalia. Let's get started with this question of Angola's Chinese-built ghost towns. It really kicked off in coverage this week. Now, a lot of the coverage was done, you know, four, five, six months ago. Uh, not entirely sure why it just sparked this week, but really an article by uh, by Louise on the BBC website, which we've posted on our Facebook page, in addition to an excellent documentary by the Australian TV network SBS for their Dateline program was also there. Uh, Louise, when we talk about a ghost town, give us a paint us a picture of what you saw in Colomba and, and what it feels like to be there. Well, the city itself is, is quite remarkable, and I, I watched it grow up really from nothing because I lived in Angola from 2008 until the end of 2010. So I remember when um, the signs went up saying building work will happen here, um, and it's very, very far out from the city centre. So I think I drove past it once and thought, wow, they're going to develop here. What on earth is going to be put so far away from the rest of the city? And then over the years, you could just see these sort of um, tower blocks creeping up, creeping up. And then when I went back in, I think it was October last year, I drove past and I just thought in the distance, goodness, what is this that's growing up? It almost looked like a mirage because it was so enormous. Um, when I first went in um, January, it was still very much being, um, parts of it still being built. It was officially opened in November last year. So that's when it uh, was officially opened. The houses have been on sale for over a year. 
Um, but in fact, it's it really is completely empty. There's there's apparently only 220 apartments have been sold out of the 2,800 that are already on the market. Um, I went in, um, they have a lot of security on the gate, so you can only go in through one of the entrances. Once you get in, you just drive and drive and drive through empty street after empty street after empty street. And Angola is a very uh, dynamic, lively, sort of dusty, chaotic place. And to be somewhere like that in, in Luanda just felt very un-Angolan. I mean, you just forgot you're in Angola just while, while you're there. Okay, so let me, and Kobus and Ann, I'll, let, I'll ask one more question, then I can open it up here. Let's just get right to the bottom line, because the, the question over responsibility has been one of the ones that's circulating around. Who is ultimately responsible for these kinds of decisions? Do you get the sense that this was the Chinese that wanted to do this, or is this the local authorities, the Angolan officials who said, build the town here, and who are responsible ultimately for filling it up? Well, the context of Angola and China's relationship is reasonably well known in that Angola had a very long war uh, for 30, 40 years, and they needed help reconstructing. Now, the rest of the international community wasn't particularly interested in helping Angola straight after the war in 2002. They perhaps didn't trust the peace process, um, but the Chinese wanted to help, and they provided the know-how, the money, and the labor. And in return, Angola gave them what Angola can give them, and that's oil. And so they invited the Chinese over. Now, the Chinese have built um, schools, hospitals, roads, railways, and the extent of the Chinese construction in Angola, the footprint is enormous. This city was um, one of the biggest projects, and it's part of the Angolan government uh, pledge to build. The, the pledge was made in 2008 to build one million homes by 2012. So there was obviously a need to build a lot of homes very quickly, and the Angolan government felt the Chinese could deliver on that. Now, I feel very much that if you're commissioning somebody to do some work for you, uh, you decide what work is done, and then you appraise it. And if you don't like it, you ask them to redo it, or you question them. Now, for me, the Angolan government's in this position. They needed the houses built, but I wonder how much attention they've paid, or I wonder, you know, how they... Um, looked at the planning, because I think the big question mark is the project seems so Chinese and so alien to anything else in Angola that perhaps there seems to be it's been a, a project that's been forced on Angola rather than a project that Angola has chosen itself. But we don't know that, though, yet, correct? Well, that, that's the big question mark. And the thing with the Angolan and China relationship, it's very, very opaque. We don't know quite how the deals are made. Um, we don't know how much um, things really cost. We get given tidbits of numbers and figures, but nothing's really written down. Um, everything's done very much behind closed doors. It's all negotiated state to state. Um, interestingly, the government has a Ministry for Construction and Urbanism, but they weren't involved in this project. It was a different um, office, an office of the presidency, which was involved in this. It was seen very much as a presidential project. So there hasn't been a transparent process. It's not that there was no public consultation. It wasn't a case of being able to go into a library and see what they were building and question it. It's just appeared. So we don't really know how much say the Angolans had, but surely as a government, if you ask someone to build something, you should surely take responsibility for what's built. Cobus? 
Um, Louise, I was I was wondering, um, you know, kind of one of the main points of criticism about this project is that the the apartments are priced completely out of the range of uh, that Angolans can afford. You, um, uh, you know, from what I've seen, they're priced roughly from about one hundred and twenty thousand um, dollars. Can you give me an idea? Like, did you, could you could you find out anything about what thinking was about the kind of you know the targeting of this project? Like, who who were they thinking? The, I mean, both particularly the, the Angolan government. I mean, who were they thinking? We're going to live there. Well, this is the thing, um, and I would love to have been a fly on the wall on the whole planning process. And um, what appears to have happened is that Angola wanted to build um, a big new city to house people because they have huge overcrowding issues. This isn't the only Chinese city that's being built around Luanda. There are others, not quite as big. I mean, this is the biggest one. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that they really sat down and thought about the marketability or how much each apartment was going to cost. Now, about two years ago, the talk was these will be social houses, there'll be about $80,000 per apartment, which is still a lot for an Angolan, but it didn't seem that much. But this figure of 120000 some 200000 is so far out of the reach of most ordinary Angolans. And there's a second layer of controversy, which I didn't touch on in the BBC article because it's quite complicated, but the company which is marketing the apartments, which is selling the apartments, is apparently owned um, by several government ministers who were also involved in the National Oil Company, which, out of the blue last year, was given responsibility to market the houses. So there's lots of different people involved at different levels. We're not really quite sure who's actually in charge. Now, we have a question from uh, Victoria Shore who came onto our Facebook page and uh, wanted to ask you, has the government, does the government have any plans for the town or the complex officially now that we have this ghost town? Have you heard any follow-up that it's just sitting there? If it was very expensive flats at 70000 80000 is it possibly now going to be turned into social housing? What are they going to do with it, uh, asks Victoria Shore. Well, there has been some talk of providing um, lower-cost housing, maybe some rentals, and apparently members of the ruling party are going to be given uh, first preference for this. But again, we're not really sure how this will work. Um, there's an election coming up in eight weeks' time, so one would think that's perhaps connected to that and it's trying to appease people. Um, the sales have been really, really miserable. I mean, when they announced the apartments are going on sale, there was huge interest. People queued around the block three different shops in Luanda. People drove to the city. They were desperate to get their name on the list. But no one knew how much the houses were going to cost. So when they actually announced the houses were going on sale, nobody knew what they're putting their name down for. They just put their name on the list. And then about two weeks later, the prices were revealed. And it was like, oh, maybe I'll take my name off the list. So obviously the interest has slightly dwindled. And the other problem in Angola is that the banking sector, while growing very quickly, doesn't have a strong credit um, capacity, so people can't get mortgages. So although, you know, $200,000 is a lot of money, if you have a mortgage, it can become affordable. But mortgages are just so hard to get that, that people um, will struggle to buy it outright. Will they become cheaper? I don't know. We, we don't know. The thing with Angolan um, government policy is we don't really know anything until it's published in the state media. So you're always trying to second guess what's actually going to happen. Now, it seems like from the, the documentary that we posted on our Facebook page of the SBS, from SBS uh, Dateline show, that a lot of, of anger and rage on the street is, is really turned toward the Chinese for this, that they've built this, this was their mistake and whatnot. Uh, you know, where is blame being targeted from the point of view of Angolans? Is it being directed towards their government or more towards the Chinese? 
Well, Angolans are not overly fond of their government at the moment. Um, it's been 10 years since the end of the war, and people feel that the country is not developed as quickly as it should have done. Um, there's a lot of tension just now, a lot of um, street protests, which are very rare in Angola because the authorities are quite strict. Um, so they're angry at the government for perhaps wasting money, and they're perhaps angry at the Chinese for being complicit in this. Um, there's quite strange racism towards Chinese people in Angola that I've personally witnessed. It's not really, um, how would I describe it? Is it racism? They, they live very separately. The Chinese don't really integrate with the Angolan community. So you have a very much them and us scenario. So people often refer to the Chinese as, oh, Chinesa, which is just the Portuguese word for, for Chinese, but they say it in a very bitter way, or Shinoka, which is a more sort of slang term. There's also a complicated case of a new hospital, which was opened, I think, in 2006, and they had to close it 18 months later because it started to fall apart. And people are naturally quite cross that a hospital that was built for them um, has fallen down and now they're being treated in tents down the road. So there is a slight resentment towards the Chinese and they feel as well they're taking their jobs, they're being imported as cheap labour. But I think people also realise that, well, the government has a say in this. It, it is Angola and the Angolan government should be running Angola while they're letting the Chinese take advantage of them. You know, Cobus, this is one of these, you know, a consolidation of so many of the topics that we've been talking about over the past few months. And certainly this one came up in the BBC uh, Africa debate in, in Lusaka about who is ultimately accountable here. Is it, you know, the foreign investors, not just the Chinese, who are, should be responsible for their behavior and their actions, or is it the local government? And it's really, I don't think there is a simple answer to it, because at some, at the end of the day, probably both have some responsibility. But did you, do you see it the way I do in terms of a lot of these themes coming up in this particular story? Yes, yes, I do. And, you know, kind of, I think related to that is also what, what Louise may, mentioned that, you know, there's a kind of a breakdown of, of uh, trust between Africans and their own governments as well. You know, so, um, you know, it's... It, it you can kind of you can see a situation where Africans sometimes blame the Chinese for colluding with people in their own government that they might that they not don't trust anyway. You know, kind of where the two kind of get painted with the same brush in a way. Um, and I think you know, kind of the Chinese uh, are probably not doing enough to kind of to to break down those kind of perceptions. Among other reasons, because the the kind of negotiations between governments and the China, between African and Chinese governments are so um, so opaque. Well, let me ask a, an awkward question here. Do the Chinese really care? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Angola is the second largest oil supplier to China. That really is their main priority. If they're not popular on the streets of Luanda, you know, okay, that's too bad, but who cares? They're in good with the government. They're in good with the oil companies. Louise, does it really matter if the Chinese are well-liked in Luanda? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. I think um, a recent report by the Brenthurst Foundation looking at Chinese traders who'd uh, gone to Africa to work independently of government projects answered that question. I think there's two Chinas. There's the state and then there's Chinese ordinary people. Um, what I think happens in Angola is that the state is perhaps perceived as the bad guy who's perhaps building um, sub-quality houses, hospitals, etc., perhaps ripping off the Angolan government, perhaps taking advantage of them, taking Angolan jobs by sending in their own labourers. But yet it's the individual Chinese who have nothing to do with the government who feel the racism. It's the people who own the shops. It's the people who um, have a private building company. They're the ones who feel the brunt of the resentment from the Angolans. So 
it's it's complicated. I think um, from the West point of view, or, or what is the West? I mean, we're all in different parts of the um, of the world, but from the outside looking in, I think China's a very easy um, person to blame. Oh, you know, it's the Chinese again. But we don't say that about the Brazilians. We don't say that about the Portuguese, about the Americans, about the British. You know, you, you, I, for some reason, we always lump together all Chinese people. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to be although that is the state, and then there are individual people as well. Yeah, and that's something that we've talked about quite a bit, that there sometimes does seem to be a double standard, and that's not necessarily in defense of the Chinese, but more to highlight a certain level of hypocrisy uh, that people have in terms of where blame is, blame is assigned. Let me just give a few links to some suggested reading here. Of course, uh, Louise's article, Angola's Chinese Built Ghost Town, that is in our on our Facebook. You can also find that on the BBC website. I also want to recommend The Economist came out uh, last August um, with a, a very, very interesting article on the China International Fund and how a lot of the deals in Angola um, are very opaque, and as as, uh, as as Louise talked about, the fact that we don't see much what happens behind the scenes, and how in many of the deals, according to this Economist report, uh, so much of it uh, benefits to the Chinese, not necessarily anywhere near to the advantage for the Angolans themselves. And finally, that Brenthurst Foundation report on Chinese merchants, we've got that on our ChinaAfricaProject.com website under academic papers. So if you're interested in looking at that, uh, go ahead onto our website. Let's go on to our second topic now, and this question of perceptions. And that's very much part of what we've just been talking about today, about how Chinese are perceived, how Americans are perceived. And we, we this article on MSNBC came out about two weeks ago, and it had some video elements in it. And basically what they did is they wandered around the streets of a couple African countries, I think South Africa is one of them, and said, what do you think of America? And uh, what ended up happening was people said, well, my, my, my head may be with China, but my heart is with America. Tell me a little bit about that article and what your impression of it was. You're asking, asking me, Eric? Uh, no, I'm going to ask Anne. Is Anne, are you with us or did we lose Anne? Oh, I'm here. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, you know, I think that this article just showed that, you know, China is seen as this great economic uh, you know, machine, and they work hard, and they're developing fast. But U.S. still uh, kind of kind of owns the superpower, soft power. I'm sorry, and you know, we're still seen as the land of the free, and we have, um, you know, we uh, promote talent and creativity, and kind of um, there's so much opportunity in the U.S. And I think that even though China, uh, you know, has come in and won a lot of goodwill in Africa. I think that, um, you know, as we saw in the video, it's still not somewhere that maybe Africans want to move to or kind of uh, see as a role model in terms of reforming their political systems. Louise, do, do you... Um, I oh, think that's also, it's, you know, kind of, it's, it's difficult to um, to overestimate the, the kind of, the, the linkages between Africans and African-Americans, I think, as well, you know, kind of particularly at the moment. Um, you know, I was in South Africa, for example, when Michael Jackson died, and it was just, like, massive mourning, you know, kind of people were just so sad. Um, you know, I think the, the kind of cultural linkages between, between African-American culture and the, the kind of influence of African-American music, styles, fashion, and so on in in, Afri- in sub-Saharan Africa, I think is c- can't be overstated. I think that that's maybe that might be one of the 
kind of strongest kind of batteries of American soft power in Africa at the moment. So, Louise, it's really a separation between the perceptions of soft power and the power of soft power, and that maybe people don't pay quite as much attention to the politics or they, they somehow divorce the two. Did, did you, do you see in your daily life on the streets of Johannesburg and elsewhere in southern Africa when you travel that this perception of the United States still remains strong, whereas maybe new powers like the Chinese and the Indians are treated a little more skeptically? I think um, many Africans still have that uh, respect um, and appreciation. And like you say, there's little cultural links with the United States. Um, and of course, it's the, a big economy and it's got a lot of power globally. But I think they see China and India as closer to Africa in terms of how the people are, the developing economies. Um, you know, many times when, um, well, I cited the example of Angola, when America and Europe didn't want to help Angola um, after the end of the war, the Chinese did. So you have different um, relationships. You've got that very much South-South cooperation. I think, uh, you know, China and India has changed the game for African consumers. It's thanks to Indian and Chinese products that people in townships can have washing machines and, and, and stereos and all these things which they couldn't have before because they were too expensive, because they were coming from Europe and they're coming from America. So I think people see China and Africa quite practically in a sort of, well, they're, um, you know, China and India, sorry, are helping us um, access things that we couldn't access before. But I think um, Anne is right that they still have a, a big appreciation for America. And I think the soft power message is still working quite well. Yeah. So there's this uh, this, uh, this cognitive idea, which is, you know, it's practical. And again, as that woman was quoted in the MSNBC.com article, my head is with China, my heart is with America. So taking a lesson out of the American kind of playbook, the Chinese are investing huge amounts of money now in media operations. Let's see. Let's go down the list. They've launched uh, the China Daily newspaper out of South Africa. China Radio International now is expanding on the continent. Xinhua is giving away its wire feed service to newspapers across the continent. And most visibly, most notably, uh, CCTV uh, has launched a huge operation out of Nairobi. And they have, uh, you know, they're broadcasting Africa Live and a couple of different programs every day. You know, let me just throw an open question here. Is anybody paying attention? Is it going to be any good? Is it something that you think will tilt the dial? And what are your thoughts? I mean, I think in terms of the West, I don't think that it's going to be noticed at all, at least for a while. I think that if China is trying to change Africa's image, you know, for the rest of the world and its own image uh, for the West, I don't think that uh, people in the U.S. at least uh, think CCTV or a lot of Chinese uh, state-owned media are credible sources. I think they think that they're basically the government speaking. Um, I think it, they but, are very valuable because... But with all ahead. due respect, though, the Americans don't think that much outside the United States is credible in terms of news. I mean, the BBC barely makes any access. Al Jazeera certainly has no presence. I mean, Americans don't pay that sure. much attention to international news. I mean, I think Al Jazeera is seen as sort of like, if you want an, a not-American biased perspective, then that's where you would go. And I think that CCTV kind of wants to have that sort of similar reputation. Cobus, you know, the, the, this is the question that I've raised before, and I sound like the jerk when I say this, but at the end of the day, I mean, let's call a spade a spade. 
Um, CCTV is just dreadfully boring television to watch. It's really badly done. Um, if I see one more handshake of a visiting minister and the you know and the and the pride that you know China has in its relationship with Zambia, you're just like, oh God, you know. So at the end of the day, the content matters. They've got all the graphics and they've got you know all the satellite distribution. And Lord knows when you're in Kinshasa, you can actually get China Radio International and CCTV. But the question is, does anybody actually want to watch? I think you know what's what's interesting for me in in watching CCTV's Africa coverage over the last the last few months is that and you know kind of it's, it's difficult to say it without sounding rude but it's it's a kind of a go and sound rude Chinese. sound rude. <laughs> they kind of de-Chinese the image in a way, you know, kind of you see, you don't see a lot of Chinese faces, um, particularly in the particularly in the African coverage. They they went on a hiring spree, particularly in East Africa, um, and they, they kind of grabbed a bunch of pretty high-profile uh, TV anchors and journalists and so on, particularly in Kenya. Um, you know, kind of, so when you watch... Um, you know, kind of when you watch it now, it's a kind of a slick, kind of African branded kind of hour or two hours. You know, kind of, um, kind of, you know, inserted into a more kind of a Chinese kind of general channel. Uh, that's the way it appears on uh, Southern African um, satellite TV, anyway. Um, you know, and that I find interesting. It's in, uh, uh, you know, I wonder if, if it was really necessary for them to kind of like strip their Chineseness out in order to make it in Africa, but maybe they felt that they had to. I don't know. What, what do you think, Louise? I was going to say, actually, I agree with you, Kobus. I the, the, the small um, amounts of CCTV, the Africa shows I've watched, I thought it was very un-Chinese. In fact, I didn't see any Chinese faces. The only thing that made me realise it was CCTV was the quite prominently placed microphone just in view of the camera when they're interviewing people. <laughs> that nice North Korean style of television yeah. journalism that they've got. <laughs> But um, no, there were no Chinese presenters that I saw the clips in the clips that I've seen. Um, the programs were very much focused on Africa. You had African journalists. You had, like you say, these quite high-profile Kenyan anchors who had been poached from some of the networks there. And it was a slick production. I mean, they seemed to be reporting in a balanced way. They had a very detailed coverage of the Libyan elections over the weekend. Um, to me, it was comparable to BBC folks on Africa television or to CNN's African output. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seemed very professional. The website still is a bit clunky. I did see the odd Chinese ambassador says this is great sort of story, which is still very like the old school CCTV and the old school Xinhua. But I thought actually the content on television was was very clean and it wasn't at all African. So they're obviously making a deliberate effort to really try and give something new and try and compete, I think, on the continent with um, CNN's Africa coverage, with BBC and with the local broadcasters. And, and to their credit here, uh, you know, my former employer, France 24, France 24 here in Paris, which really targets the African market, um, has virtually no African faces on it. So we talk about the stripping of the Chinese away from CCTV. Yet, I don't know if we put that same talking about hypocrisy here in double standards. We certainly don't. I haven't heard any criticism of France 24 or even Al Jazeera. You know, Al Jazeera doesn't have a Qatari influence on its or Qatari presenters and whatnot. They're all foreigners and just, you know, they're all international. And France 24 has mostly French, but really doesn't seem to represent the continent the same way that CCTV is going. Um, just one of those African people, may, our Kenyan listeners may be, uh, may be following this. Beatrice Marshall, she was poached from KTN, Ken Kenya Television Network, and as well as Eric uh, Nyorka, as well, who's another journalist. So they, they both of them are starting, uh, have been on the air in. Uh, in Nairobi. Um, so um, let's just do a quick round. Uh, Kobus, are you generally optimistic that uh, thing projects like CCTV can help sway, you know, 
the balance of power, the cultural soft power, and really kind of do something? Or uh, what are your thoughts on in terms of actually having an, an impact? You know, from from watching kind of, um, you know, a, a, a bunch of CCTV, I'm kind of optimistic in the way that it brings African news to Africans, because I feel that there, there hasn't been enough of that, you know, kind of there isn't and another kind of voice kind of recording and reporting what's going to go what's going on in Africa is, is great, you know, what, what I do feel, however, is that the one place that you're not going to be looking for any kind of coverage of the China Africa relationship is CCTV Africa, you know, kind of because they seem to be steering away from China. Chinese stuff generally, and particularly any kind of controversy about any kind of Chinese engagement seems to kind of fall off their radar completely. Which is really too bad, because it would be great to have the Chinese reporting on, on like, <coughs> Louise's story uh, in uh, in Colombo as well. And what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, and, and sorry, sorry, just to, oh. just sorry to interrupt you, and um, just, just to follow up on that, I mean, the, the, one of the problems with that is that horror stories about China and Africa has become kind of like a little mini genre in the Western, in with the Western press, you know, so by just saying for the for the Chinese press to ignore it is actually kind of, you know, it, it, it doesn't help them at all. They need to find some kind of creative way of, of meeting that issue because it's coming up. I mean, today I posted on our first Facebook page a insane Daily Mail article, oh. um, you know, which just insane, kind of like the, the, the greatest kind of collection of like China, Africa kind of misinformation that, that I've seen in a while, um, you know, including things like, China, you know, kind of Chinese warplanes things are bombing the opposition in African countries, stuff like that. It's insane. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, there's no counter voice to that because, among other reasons, because CCTV isn't touching China, Africa stuff very much. Now, Anne, you brought up this week on the Facebook page as well, and this is something I'd like to get Louise's feedback on, this question of the narratives of reporting uh, in Africa. And the fact is that in the West, we've got what I call an embedded narrative. And, you know, and again, I was based in Kinshasa and, in, in, and saw what the embedded narratives there, that if a story wasn't about you know, starving babies, AIDS, child soldiers, you know, or sexual violence against women, editors in London, Washington, New York really didn't want to have it. Then the white savior complex in the form of Nicholas Kristof comes kind of sweeping in, and he shows all the wonderful things that white people are doing to help save Africans. Now, Nicholas Kristof, and this is an article you post posted on the Facebook page as well, is coming under a little bit of criticism in part because we're seeing Africa uh, across the continent show some of the best economic performance, starting to see a success story, and that conflicts with the embedded narrative. What are Americans to think of Africa when they have these confusing messages? Well, I mean, I think he is in, you know, kind of, he does face this issue that, you know, Americans will really only f pay attention to Africa when there are these sensational articles. And, you know, I think Nick Kristoff knows better than anyone else how much growth and, you know, the opportunity that there is in Africa. But I think um, what he does is also important. I mean, we, we see Americans who are completely in favor of cutting off all foreign aid or of not renewing uh, certain, you know, trade agreements with Africa. And I think that what he does to bring attention to you know, the, the good and the bad in Africa is extremely important. And, um, you know, he he should probably balance his coverage and, uh, you know, cover more of the success stories and the opportunity in Africa. But, um, you know, I think that if people aren't interested in that, then 
he has to kind of cater to his audience. Yeah. Luis, as a reporter in, in, in South Africa who has to deal with editors and whatnot, this question of, of different narratives, and the Chinese are saying now that there is, there's an opportunity for a different narrative. Uh, to talk about from the South-South point of view, to have more African voices involved in the storytelling. And the fact is that the West has had a very limited scope of coverage when it comes to Africa. What is your perspective, both on the Chinese proposition and in your own experience in pitching stories for coverage? This is such an interesting topic, and it could be a whole podcast on its own. I think... um there's been a huge uh, introspection in the last 12 months about how Africa's reported um, because you've got these two sides. You have got the bad news in the continent. There are awful things that happen here every day. You have got issues of uh, corrupt governments. You've got problems of, um, you know, famine, war, etc. But there's also lots of good news. You've got sort of fashion designers coming out. You've got the business story. You've got the growing economy. So how do you find the balance? Well, it's a constant conflict because you have Afro... Uh, you know, optimists who say that we should only report good news, and then you have the people who say, no, no, we must, we must remember there's bad things happening too. I'm very fortunate that I work for um, BBC Africa Service a lot, and they produce African content for the African continent. So we're producing content um, for Africans to listen to. So we're very aware of what, you know, we're not always telling the bad story. But I think it becomes very subjective. I'm British, so I see things through British eyes. And I've lived in Africa for nearly five years. So you could say that perhaps I don't have a totally British view anymore because I've been here a long time. But I see things differently in Angola to how my Angolan colleagues see things. That's sort of natural. It's about subjectivity. There are stories that I just would never pitch to editors in London or in Johannesburg because I know that people won't be interested in the stories. Um, and maybe that's me just being a freelance, me just being realistic. I know that, you know, I can only do so many stories about drought and Angola in, in, in six months because people don't really care that much. Um, so it does come down to readerships as well. And, you know, at the end of the day, news is a business. And there's a reason why the Daily Mail wrote that story about my story in the way it did, because they knew its readers wanted to read that because its readers were calling out for that. Yeah. And you can see the comments on, at the end of the article on their website and how they responded. Now, The Guardian wouldn't have made the same um, the same coverage because their readers feel differently. So I think sometimes we have to remember that news is a business and we're selling news. So we've got to think about who we are selling our stories to. Yeah. And I mean, that is, that's Nicholas Kristof's. And again, I don't want to get down the rat hole of Nicholas Kristof, but the point is that he's saying, you know, that if I talked about, you know, the real story, people wouldn't pay attention. So I highlight, you know, exceptional stories, which may not reflect the kind of reality, but it allows, it, 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 it does get much more attention. And, uh, and it's one of the, the challenges that journalists, and particularly freelance journalists, who have to pitch stories, um, you want to get paid, you want to make a living, um, you know necessarily that, you know, as you said, some of the stories you pitch may not actually get accepted and whatnot. But it is, so I guess the, the word to, to what's the advice that you would give our, our listeners here is, um, you know, to, to be at, do, do you suggest putting a skeptical eye towards some of the Western coverage? Or how do you, how do you, you know, educate a reader to know what the real story is. If, if, as you're saying, news is a business and some of the coverage is slanted in favor of what people actually want, regardless of whether it's true. Well, I think readers have a responsibility to find out the information. Just like when I go to a new country, I just don't, I don't just read one publication to find out what's going on there. So if you're somebody living in the States or the UK and you care about Africa, you want to find out more, you've got a responsibility to read 
different newspapers, different magazines, listen to different broadcasters. And I think now with the internet, with Twitter, with blogs, with Facebook, there's no excuse not to see the full picture. I think if you only read the Daily Mail in in Britain, then you're going to have a very, very narrow view, not just on Africa, by the way, on everything British. So I think it's up to readers to take responsibility. But I also think it's up to Africans to take responsibility because we make this big issue about how the uh, Western journalists come in here, take these bureau jobs, stalk the truth, only sell what their readers want to read. But I don't see... Um, many African journalists producing copy or, or, or footage for African um, outlets that then goes abroad. They need to take responsibility to tell their story too. Interesting. Okay, so question is now, what do you think? If you have opinions on this, and I'm sure everybody does have an opinion on this, please go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project and share some of your opinions. We've already got a couple different conversations going. Uh, maybe pick up under the Daily Mail this awful, awful, ridiculous, as uh, you know, insipid <laughs> article from the Daily Mail. If you really want to see the best hits of, of every stereotype and every piece of misinformation in that Daily Mail, uh, I wasn't even, Cobus, I wasn't even going to bring that up in the show because it was so awful so i'm glad that you you did that one so uh but go ahead uh, the, the funniest part, the sorry sorry to interrupt you eric the funniest quote for me from that was was um they're talking at some search about uh about confucius institutes and then they say it's a cultural or a cultural institute you know kind of in scare in scare quotes kind of teaching baffled locals about how to do business in mandarin oh. i'm like what oh. <laughs> God. Okay. I'm so angry. <laughs> so you know, so take take a look at that article. Take a look at the comments, which are actually just as entertaining, and uh, and we hope that you can share a few with us, and we will uh, read a few on the air next week in our show. Let's go on to our third and final topic. Uh, about 800 Chinese sailors are now steaming on their way to the the Somali coast to participate again in their second tour of, uh, of anti-piracy multinational operations. This is, of course, UN-mandated uh, operations off the coast of Somalia to try and bring some order, working, of course, in conjunction with the United States uh, Navy that's there as well. Cobus, uh, you mentioned the fact that it, what's interesting about this latest operation is the fact that the, the Chinese battle groups that will be there will also be, you know, in working in co- close cooperation with some other Asian powers, which is, you know, highlighting this great interest that we're seeing in military engagement in Africa from Asia. Yes, I mean, for me, the, the the kind of greatest surprise, as you know, kind of as someone who comes out of Japan, kind of Japan studies, and, and who you know, someone who's lived in Japan for a while, is that the Japanese Navy is actually joining the Chinese Navy, the Indian Navy, and now possibly also the, the South Koreans might also be joining them. I mean, this is very rare. Obviously, the Japanese has a peace constitution, and it's, uh, it's very, you know, you almost never see them doing anything like this. You know, they have very limited engagement in Iraq, but more than that, it's almost nothing. So that was surprising for me. And, and you know, kind of, and obviously they're joining a kind of a larger kind of multinational, uh, you know, kind of group of, of different countries. I know the Dutch are involved um, to try and kind of decrease uh, pirate attacks in the Gulf of Aden. Yeah, and this is one of those things, Anne, which the United States seems to have a, a split personality about. Because on the one hand, we talk about how the Chinese have to behave more like a superpower and start carrying more responsibility on the international level to participate with more with multinational forces to really kind of step up and not have the United States be, quote unquote, the policeman to the world. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, when you start seeing sophisticated Chinese, you know, destroyers showing up in other parts of the world, there's also this kind of fear that it plays into that, look, China is now 
now the official boogeyman of the United States. We need to triple our defense budget. Um, what do you think the reaction is in Washington to the deployment of Chinese forces like this, particularly in zones of influence where the United States has been very, very strong over the years? Right. Well, I think you're exactly right. I think that, I mean, this is very threatening for uh, most people in the U.S. I mean, we've seen, uh, we, you know, there are so many reports of the Chinese Navy being built up and uh, how much money and investment they're putting in this Navy. All the while, the U.S. is in the process of uh, cutting our naval budget by, um, by a lot. And we're about to hit defense sequestration. And um, I think that the U.S. is really worried that China is about to kind of take over dominance of the seas. And um, I think that, you know, you're right. We do call on China and other, you know, international players to help us, um, you know, uh, ensure security in this region. And um, but at the same time, I think this is extremely worrisome to most Americans. Yeah. So sequestration, just to just to hold on, Kobus, just to explain what sequestration is. This is a process that if the U.S. Congress cannot uh, come to terms on a budget deal, then about $450 billion over 10 years will be cut from the U.S. defense budget, uh, and some of that will be cut from the United States Navy. Now, of course, the United States Navy, even with those cuts, will remain by far the most powerful and largest Navy in the world. However, it will be diminished, but there are a lot of special interests in Washington that have been playing up the China threat and using examples of overseas deployments like this as a reason to kind of step up funding for certain projects to confront the Chinese, uh, their growth in their defense budgets. Kobus, go ahead. Sorry, um, and I actually just wanted to ask you, um, you know, kind of as this was happening, there's also kind of reports about um, the Obama administration stepping up action against al-Shabaab, um, you know, kind of groups, which is obviously this rebel group in Somalia that's also linked to al-Qaeda, um, and, you know, kind of, um, you know, um, sanctions against Eritrean officials who, who kind of, uh, you know, supported al-Shabaab and, and, and so on. Um, can you give me an idea of how um, how this, the al-Shabaab kind of attacks and the anti-piracy stuff kind of, you know, to which is, is America like shifting its attention away from anti-piracy towards Al-Shabaab, or is it more complicated than that? You know, I'm I'm honestly not sure, Kobus. Um, I think that a lot of this just falls under um, this kind of terrorist threat that um, U.S. news and uh, policymakers kind of use to justify almost any American interaction anywhere. Um, I'm not sure specifically, though. Well, you know, the the al-Shabaab threat, and again, we've gone off the reservation of China and Africa a little bit here, but the al-Shabaab threat uh, is largely being diminished now, in part because, you know, of the drone attacks that have been going off of bases in, in Ethiopia and Djibouti as well. So, and then if you recall last year, uh, the United States Naval Forces, especially the Navy SEALs, the same uh, type of uh, detachment that uh, killed Osama bin Laden, um, rescued uh, an American hostage from al-Shabaab, and that really highlighted the weaknesses that it has. But it brings up this question uh, of perception again. And Louise, this is a question I wanted to kind of bring to you about if you imagined any other foreign power in Africa— Uh, operating as much militarily. And by the way, it's also important to note that over a quarter of the American aid budget, the USAID budget to Africa, is in the form of military assistance, not in the form of of what we think of wheat and corn and other things like that. The The American policy to militarize its relationship with Africa, that doesn't seem to seep down into the perception question that we talked about earlier. Do you think Africans, particularly in places like Southern Africa, are sensitive to the growing U.S. military presence there? 
Or is this something that they would prefer to see the Americans versus the other powers like the Chinese? I think people are very aware of America wanting to stay the big guy. And people do talk about this competition between China and America and the whole issue with the AFRI form. Is that the name of their African force? AFRICOM. Which AFRICOM. AFRICOM, yeah. sorry, which doesn't have... AFRICOM doesn't even have a base in um, Africa. It has a base in Germany, I think, because they can't decide where to put it. And Angola, actually, at one point, was being considered. Um, but, you know, the British have army presence there. The French, I mean, goodness, if we look at Ivory Coast and what happened there and all how the French went in to save the day, you know, you look at um, lots of different things. I think it's, you know, I think it's about perceptions. I think people see it as a natural progression. If China is becoming a more global player economically, politically, then why not militarily as well? I think people see it as a natural progression of, of how geopolitical um, shifts are happening. This was one issue that we brought up last year on the show in, actually, no, sorry, it was earlier this year, Cobus, when there was a spate of kidnappings of Chinese workers in Sudan and also in Egypt. And it really begged the question of whether or not the Chinese will begin to militarize or maybe not even militarize but harden their uh, their security operations. And again, it may not come in the form of seeing PLA troops in, in places like Tanzania, but it may come in the form of military contractors. Um, you know, it may come in lots of different shapes. They may be partnering with other countries to provide security for them, but you'll start to see probably a hardening of, of Chinese security. One other point before we, we wrap up here is that, and Kobus, you and I have talked about this as well, is that these operations that they're conducting off the coast of Somali really do give the Chinese... An, you know, some, some real-world naval experience, which they really haven't had so far of a shore, of, of far afield from, uh, from their own shores. So as China does emerge, you'll probably see them expand uh, into southern Africa, into the coasts of, uh, of Tanzania as well, and to that part off east of Africa. What's your final thoughts on this, Cobus? I think it's it's definitely. I mean, you know, Africa might be playing a kind of uh, uh, you know kind of an unexpected role in um, in creating a kind of a future greater harmony between East Asian navies because in the in last year there was uh, you know kind of the proto version of this kind of um, cooperation. Uh, there were there were attempts to kind of get the Indians and the Chinese to work together, and um, there were discussions, uh, quite tense discussions, I think, between India and China about where to have um, where to have the you know, kind of where to base this kind of action, and um, I know that Mauritius came up, and you know this might kind of shift uh, the the kind of geopolitical importance of Mauritius in the first place, but it might also have the kind of kind of wider impact of being a kind of a non-Asian, non-kind of historically weighted um, place for Asian navies to kind of work out how to work together. You know, kind of I think the. The fact that it's so far away from East Asia makes it possible for Japan, South Korea, India, and China to actually work out some kind of cooperation uh, method. Um, and, and that might then kind of end up kind of changing the face of Asia rather than necessarily just Africa. Yeah, I mean, hard to imagine the Japanese, Chinese, and Korean navies actually working together. One other point is that the Seychelles was also put down as a map on the map for a place where Chinese bases might, the first overseas Chinese naval base might actually be placed. So so that'll do it for this edition of the, the China and Africa podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, comments, and feedback we want to hear from you, go to our Facebook page. That is, of course, the easiest place at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. 
Project. You can also find us uh, online at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And Louise, at the end of each show, we do a little bit of self-promotion here. So if people want to follow you and if they want to be able to kind of read along to what you're doing, if you've got a Twitter account, of course, people can find you over on the BBC. Is there anywhere else on, on these various interwebs around the world that people can follow you? Um, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter. It's at Louise Redfuss. So it's just my name. Um, and you can see my name spelling on the BBC article on your Facebook page. Excellent. So it's just at, at Louise Redfuss. Well, what we'll do is we'll put a link to your Twitter account, both on our site and as well on our Facebook page. Uh, in Cobus, uh, I keep I keep thinking Cobanesque. So <laughs> go ahead and uh, when we get to the, I always get confused at this part of the show. So give us your somewhat convoluted Twitter handle. Very annoying Twitter handle that I wish I'd never chose. Um, it's at Stadenesque. It's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. You're going to have to give us the story behind that name one day, so I, <laughs> I will follow up with that. And Anne, of course, where can people find you? They can find me at AnneSher07. A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-0-7. Cool. Okay. And we will, uh, and you can find me, I tweet on China and Africa pretty much every day. And you can find me over at E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm also on Facebook and we put our names next to each of our comments so you know who's actually talking to you. So hopefully I'll be talking with you as well on our, on, on our Facebook discussion. So that'll do it for this edition. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next Sunday with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks for listening.